Good morning. morning. Welcome. If you're new here among us, my name is Gene. I serve here at C3 Church as your lead pastor. Happy 4th of July, Independence Day, a lot to celebrate. But before we do that, before we go out and maybe have our barbecues, whatever we're going to do, be careful with the firecrackers, please. There are enough people reporting to the hospital with missing digits. We don't need any more. But before we do that, before we celebrate what man tells us to celebrate, we are going to celebrate God. That is what we are here to do this morning. So let's get started. You ever hear the phrase, your mouth is writing checks? Your body or fists can't cash. Ever hear that? We've been talking about kind of old school phrases lately. This is one of them. Last week, we talked about getting embarrassed. Maybe you've said something that got you into trouble. We talked about being beaten by a woman if you're a man, and that being very embarrassing sometimes. So this is another one. Watch what you say, because it could get you into trouble. Last week, we looked at God using the small things, the weak things, to shame the strong. We're going to look at that again this week. We talked about being embarrassed by a woman. I told you in the martial arts industry, I saw that a lot. A lot of big, tough guys got beat up by women. And maybe you can't relate to that. Maybe you're saying, nah, never done martial arts, never got beat up by a woman. But for the guys in the room, those of us who are married or have been married, if we're being honest, we've been embarrassed by a woman before. It's happened. Now, maybe you're saying, well, never did martial arts, never married, maybe you've done sports. Maybe you've done something embarrassing, like fumbled the ball at the big game. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never done that. But I bet there's one way in which you have been embarrassed physically. If you can walk, I bet you've tripped and fell before. That's embarrassing. It's kind of funny. Now, not when people who are frail or elderly trip. That's not funny. But it's kind of funny, if we're being honest. It must be part of our sinful nature. But often people will trip and fall. I'll laugh. I don't know if that's just me in the room. But the person falling is always aware of this. Because what do you do when you trip and fall? You immediately look around to see who saw it. That's what we do first. And it's kind of funny. I've seen people get hurt really bad, scrape themselves up, they're bleeding, and what do they do? They don't even check the injury, they just look around, make sure nobody saw that, because it's embarrassing. We're kind of funny that way. We take embarrassment very, very seriously. Yet we do a lot of crazy things, like sports and martial arts, running backwards. You ever do that? Did it work out for you? Picking on the men a little bit. Let's go to the women. For those of you who have been married, or you're going to get married, how many were or are worried about tripping down the aisle? (laughs) 
Is that a concern? All eyes on you. It's your big day. You spent way too much money on that dress you're going to wear once. We must not trip and fall down the aisle. Yet, we put this clumsy, what is it called, a runner down the aisle? That will make it easier to trip on. How many of you were worried about what your best man was going to say in the speech? Something stupid. Didn't bother you? Well, I heard a story of a couple about to make their vows, and the bride was really, really worried about it. She knew this guy was a wise guy, so she kept nagging him, don't say anything stupid in that speech, right up until the very minute they were about to get married. Small church, she wanted to keep an eye on him. She's not going to let him stand there with the groom. No, no, no. You're going to walk down the aisle. She's not waiting in the little dressing room. She's on him. Right until he's about to go down the aisle, she says, if you object when the pastor says something, I'm going to kill you. So he's not going to wait. He says, wow, I better not turn my back to you then. You're going to kill me. So he turns around. His back is to the altar, and he decides to moonwalk down the aisle. She is furious. Now, all eyes are on him. No attention's on her. Even the photographer's like, this is cool. He makes it all the way down. But if you know anything about the moonwalk, I'm just running on instinct from 1983, (laughs) you really need a smooth surface to make it look good. This guy has that runner thing, and he's messing it up. I know what you're thinking. Did he trip? No. He made it all the way down. Good for him. The bride is furious, and he's just up there smiling. And as she walks down the aisle, she just is laser-focused on him. She doesn't even look happy for the photographs. She's so focused that she forgets how to walk. Sure enough, she trips and falls flat on her face, breaking her nose. Blood does not look good on a white wedding dress. The wedding is ruined. But don't worry. She did make her vow that day. Yeah, she vowed to kill the best man. (laughs) Don't worry. These stories are all made up. If it involves a little boy, here's the key. If it involves a little boy doing something really bad, it's about me. (laughs) Something I did or want to do. If it's like that and it's really bad, it's just something I made up for the sermon. (laughs) Never underestimate a woman. We learned that last week. Today, we're going to be continuing in the book of Judges, chapters 6 through 12. We did 1 through 5 last week, where indeed, the theme was God using those things that the world perceives as weak or small, insignificant, to shame those people who are propped up as big or strong. This is the message of the gospel, isn't it? So whether it be Deborah, the bee, or jail, and the tent peg, Those who are weak, God uses. He's going to use you in a powerful way if you submit to him. So we'll see more of that today. 
Here we arrive in Judges chapter 6, where we see that the Israelites, they continue to do what is evil in the Lord's sight. And now the Midianites are oppressing them for seven years. They're starving. So they're destroying their crops, taking their food. And this is what we see, Judges 6, starting at verse 7. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord, your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But... You have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizer. Gideon, the son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. As I read this next part, keep that line in mind. Mighty hero. The Lord is with you. Judges 6, starting at verse 13. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. So we see that theme again. I am the weakest. What am I capable of? The Lord is with you. He will bring the victory. He will use you in a mighty way. Now, Gideon, he's a pretty cautious person. So he has this interaction. He's like, eh, I'm going to need a little bit of proof. <laughs> so, okay, let me go home. Give me a minute. I'm going to get a goat. I'm going to cook it up. I'm going to get some unleavened bread. This is the bread without the yeast essentially in it and some broth. He brings it to the angel. angel tells him to put it on a rock. He puts it on a rock, and the angel takes his staff and burns it up. angel disappears. Now, Gideon's first reaction is to freak out. Well, now he believes. I've seen the angel of the Lord. I'm going to die. No, no, no. It's okay. So he builds an altar there. He calls it Yahweh Shalom, which is the Lord is peace. I guess the Lord gave him peace. But now he's tasked with building another altar. He's got to destroy his dad's altar and build another one. So he does, but he's cautious. He does it at nighttime. Takes down the altar, builds the new one, gets the seven-year-old bull from his father's flock. He uses the Asherah pole next to this altar, a bale. It's kind of like a wooden pole phallic symbol, and uses the wood to burn up the offering at night. Then in the morning, they come to check it out. The people find out, and they say, who did this? They find out that it's Gideon. He did it. So they're going to kill him, but his father stands up for him. He says, no, no, no. If Baal is a real god, 
Let him defend himself. And then Gideon gets a new name, Jeroboam. Let Baal defend himself. Then we read this, Judges 6.33. Soon afterward, the armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east formed an alliance against Israel and crossed the Jordan, camping in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. I like the way that's worded. He blew a ram's horn as a call to arms, and the men of the clan of Abizar came to him. He also sent messengers throughout Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, summoning their warriors, and all of them responded. So here, again, as we've seen in this series, it is yet another person filled with the Spirit of the Lord in the Old Testament. I was saying that to you last week. A lot of Christians think that the Holy Spirit appears on Pentecost. Well, yes, it's like a waterfall of the Holy Spirit. This is a selective placing or clothing of the Spirit of God on certain people to perform certain tasks. But despite all of this, Gideon says, if you're going to rescue Israel, prove it after all of this. And a lot of you know the story. He takes the wool fleece and he puts it on the threshing floor. And he says, look, if it absorbs all the dew, I guess that's what it's supposed to do. I don't know. I'll believe you. I'll take it as a sign. So he waits overnight. He looks in the morning and sure enough, it's filled, it's absorbed all the dew. Fills up a bowl with it when he wrings it out. <laughs> then he says, don't be mad at me, Lord. We're going to do it again, but essentially the opposite should happen. And I'll take that is a sign. And sure enough, it happens. There's dew on the ground. It remains dry. So Gideon, still being kind of cautious, he sets out with 32,000 men. And this might remind you of the Joshua story. 30,000 men. He gets beat with two or 3,000, and he comes back with 30,000, not taking any chances. Neither is Gideon. But the Lord says, mm, not so much. If you win with that many men, You'll get credit for it, and that's not going to happen. So I want you to say to them, whoever's afraid, go home, leave. And now 22,000 men leave, leave you mean, with 10,000 men. They go a little further, and he says, you know what? Still too many men. So I want you to do a little test, divide them into groups. The ones who cup the water and drink it that way, those people are essentially going to continue on with you, but the ones who get down on their knees and lick it up, not them. There's only 300 of these people that drink that way. The Lord says, that's about right. Okay, go ahead. Then he says to Gideon, if you're still scared, scout out the Midianite camp. Indeed, he's cautious. So he goes down and he scouts out the camp, and when he does with his servant, Pura. He scouted out there listening to a conversation between two guys. And one guy says, I had a dream that a loaf of barley bread tumbled down a hill and ran over a tent. The other guy says, ah, he's like an interpreter. He's like, I can interpret that. It means that Gideon is going to have victory over the Midianites. So now he's going to set out after this scouting mission. He tells his men, divide into three groups of 100 it's interesting. I'll help you understand it if you know the account. Take a ram's horn and a torch and a clay pot. Why? Well, they're going to get close to the camp and kind of surrounded, if you will, quietly, in secret. It's nighttime. 
And what you can do is you can light these torches, highly flammable. They're kind of hard to put out, so they'll stay in the pot, but the light won't shine. On his signal, they're to break the clay pots. So all of a sudden, if you're in this camp, you just see light appear. And you're going to blow the ram's horn, the ram's horn in your right hand, the clay pot in your left. They're pretty specific about it. When the Midianites hear this, they're terrified, and the Lord, again, causes confusion. And they start killing each other. Some of them get away. Now they go in pursuit, Gideon and his army. Kind of a long story short, what happens is they're chasing two kings down, Zeba and Zalmunna, and the people of Succoth won't help him. So Gideon says, I am going to lash you with briars and thorn bushes. Long story short, he catches the kings. He does, lash 77 of the elders there, he gets a list of names, punishes them, and then kills Zeba and Zalmunna, defeating the Midianites. Judges 8.22, he says, Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler, you and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. Who rescued them? But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. However, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your falling enemies. The enemies being Ishmaelites all wore gold earrings. So this should remind you a little bit of Joseph. He was sold to the Midianite or Ishmaelite slave traders. He gets 43 pounds of gold and he makes a pretty heavy ephod that is like a priestly vest. But like Moses' bronze snake, the people end up worshiping it. The cycle again. Judges 8.28 says this, That is the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years, there was peace in the land. Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem who gave birth to his son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon died when he was very old, and he was buried in the grave of his father Joash at Ophrah in the land of the clan of Abizar. In Abimelech, we get the rest of the Gideon story. So that's what we're going to take a look at right now. Now, there are a couple of things in those passages of Scripture that might ring a bell, like Abimelech. Sounds like a guy we've seen before. Well, it's not that one. Abimelech means like king's son. So it's telling us something, son of a king. Shechem, we should remember that place too. Hamor and Shechem, that was the guy who had his way with Dina, one of Jacob's children, his daughter. And Simeon and Levi enacted revenge on them. So Shechem is not really a great place. doesn't have a good reputation. And we'll see that neither does Abimelech. What he decides to do is he visits his family there. And he says, do you want to be ruled by Gideon's 70 sons or me, your relative? Well, after some debate, they choose him. And he has Gideon's sons killed. It says all on the same rock, except Jotham. Now we get Jotham's parable. Essentially, Jotham curses Abimelech 
interestingly, on Mount Gerizim. If you remember this from the Joshua account, they're supposed to pronounce the curses from Mount Ebal, the blessings from Mount Gerizim. Ironically, Jotham pronounces this curse from Gerizim on Abimelech. And then he takes off. Then, speaking of writing checks with your mouth that your fists can't cash, there's this guy, Gale. There's some drinking going on. He starts talking trash, and then he gets Shechem to rebel against Abimelech. Well, he defeats Shechem, Abimelech does. He does something interesting again. He pours salt on the ground. Why? Salt is a preservative, so this is symbolic that this defeat will be permanent over them. The people in the tower of Shechem, the leading citizens, hear about it. They get real scared. So they decide to flee to a temple, the temple of Baal, but they figure they'll be safe there. Nope. Abimelech cuts down some trees, tells his soldiers to do it too, puts it against the temple, and they burn the temple down, killing 1,000 people. Real bad. He gets to another town, Thebes. Another tower inside the town, but these people don't run. Maybe they heard about what he did to the temple. They stay there. And at the top of this tower is a woman. So Abimelech gets close to the tower, and she drops a millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing it. Now, millstones are usually really big things for grinding flour and stuff, but you can have household what are called upper millstones, and they're smaller. You use it in the kitchen. It can be handled by a woman, and indeed it was, to crack his skull. Now, apparently, this is an embarrassing moment in Abimelech's life. <laughs> Not good. So here's what he says, Judges 9.54. I guess he's still alive here. He quickly said to his young armor-bearer, draw your sword and kill me. Don't let it be said that a woman killed Abimelech. So the young man ran him through with his sword and he died. When Abimelech's men saw that he was dead, they disbanded and returned to their homes. In this way, God punished Abimelech for the evil he had done against his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also punished the men of Shechem for all their evil. So the curse of Jotham, son of Gideon, was fulfilled. Never underestimate a woman. That is the rest of the Gideon story. There are some other judges mentioned, Tola and Jair. And then, speaking of making vows, we then see what happens when a person isn't as careful as Gideon. We get to a guy named Jephthah. He's another judge, Judges 11.1. Now Jephthah of Gilead was a great warrior. He was the son of Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. So we get more unlikely people here that are chosen to be judges. For this reason, his brothers chase him away. But then the Amorites start giving them trouble. So he's a great warrior, as it says. They call him back, ask him for help. They promise to make him leader. And unlike Gideon, he's ready to take it. Yeah. You mean if I beat the Amorites for you, I get to be your ruler? Yeah. He says, okay. He's really not cautious, but at first, he has written correspondence. He tries to use diplomacy with the Amorites. It gives him a history of Israel. 
but it doesn't work. So he knows he's going to have to go to war, and he really wants to win. He wants to win so bad that he makes a vow. Now here it's interesting because he's another judge that is filled with the Spirit of God, it tells us. Yet he doesn't have the faith to trust in that. So he makes a vow. Essentially, he says, if you give me victory, Lord, I will sacrifice to you as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of my house to greet me in victory. So he beats the Ammonites. He gets back home. The first thing that comes out of his house to greet him is his daughter, his only child. Now, a lot of people like to debate and speculate. Did he really kill her? Well, there's man's opinion, and then there's what the Word of God says. Judges 11.39, when she returned home, she went and mourned. She asked if she could mourn for two months. Okay. Comes back. When she returned from that, her father kept the vow he had made, and she died a virgin. So it has been a custom in Israel for young Israelite women to go away for four days each year to lament the fate of Jephthah's daughter. I'm sure he really regretted that vow. Well, if we continue, he fights against Ephraim despite this loss. And it says, Judges 12, 7, Jephthah judged Israel for six years. When he died, he was buried in one of the towns of Gilead. And we see that Israel has more judges. It's going to continue. Isban, Elon, and Abdon. But it's the same cycle over and over and over again, no matter what the judge does. The people continued to do what was right in their own eyes. Have you ever done what was right in your own eyes? Have you ever been completely convinced that you were right about something? Only to find out you were wrong. Maybe you argued a point, double down, as they say, on something. Maybe you did it publicly. Maybe you did it on social media. Only to find out that you were wrong. Were you embarrassed? Or did you double down? Did it make you want to change your screen name? Maybe to Jerob Bale or something like that. Have you ever said something really stupid and then felt really embarrassed by it? Maybe it was something you did. Did you regret it? Well, if so, you're not alone. In the Bible also, we see lots of examples of people who probably had regrets. People who made foolish vows, like Jephthah. And in the New Testament, I'm going to give you a preview. We see one example in a guy named Saul. Saul acted like a judge. He persecuted the church. Someone say he killed Christians. He's responsible or gave approval of the stoning, the martyrdom of one of the church's first deacons, Stephen. 
He went after Jesus' church. He was convinced he was right. But I bet he had regrets when he found out he wasn't right. You see, Jesus revealed to him that he was wrong. The Damascus Road. He blinds him. He's blind for three days until Ananias shows up and baptizes him. And then he comes to Christ. And then he started using a new name. Paul. Paul's interesting. We talk about him a lot. Why? Because Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us 13 letters or books of the Bible. That's a lot. In the New Testament, 27, 13 of them are from this one guy. So you got to talk about him a lot if you're a Bible-believing church. Now, we talked about one of those letters. It's my favorite, Philippians. I recite chapter 2 to the church very often, the Carmen Christi poem. It's beautiful. It tells us about the nature of Christ, what Christ did. We could say it in church every week. It wouldn't be enough. But if we keep reading, we get to chapter 3. Paul switches gears a little bit. He's going to warn them about false teachers. And he's talking about people who think they're right. People who are like what he was. He talks about what he was like when he thought he was right. When he thought what he was doing was right. Before he found out he was wrong. And it says this, Philippians 3, starting at verse 5. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. A real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. As for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault, says I was blameless. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Going to make a big contrast here. Yes, making a big contrast. That word garbage there, skybala in Greek, it's kind of a bad word. That is the L in the M-A-L-V of the Bible right there, if you're reading it correctly. It's kind of like the C word for garbage or human waste. The point is making a really strong contrast between what he thought was valuable, the things of the world, his new life in Christ. The things that he did wrong and his new life in Christ. He is not living life in the rear view mirror. He's moving forward, 
Philippians 3.12. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. We spend so much time running backwards. We expect not to trip and fall. We spend so much of our lives looking in the rear view mirror. Yet we expect not to crash. Yes, we must, and the Bible tells us this, learn from our past mistakes. Yes, the Bible says we're to learn from Israel's mistakes. That's why it's there. That's why we look at it. But then... We need to move on, like Saul. He moves on, becomes Paul, uses his Roman name. And so there's another part of the rest of the story where God uses a sinner, an unlikely character, changes him by the power of the Holy Spirit to do powerful things. Another unrighteous judge, so to speak, that God uses powerfully for the kingdom. We've seen in this series again and again that God uses sinners, common people. Jacob, a deceiver. Joseph, a slave. Moses, a mere shepherd and a murderer. A lot of people forget that part. Moses was a murderer. Fugitive in exile for 40 years. God uses him. Rahab, a prostitute. God uses her. She makes it into Jesus' family tree. Remarkable. And then Paul gives us 13 books of the Bible. Can you imagine that? Someone persecuting the church, murdering Christians gives us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's Word? That's impressive. And you, too, have that same Spirit in you if you're in Jesus Christ. Untold lives have been changed by people like Moses, Paul, and you, too, have the power to do that just like they did. In Jesus, you have been changed. You're not that old person. You have a new life in Christ. You are changed. But if you haven't, I want you to hear this this morning. Maybe you've done something that you have come to regret. Maybe you said something you've come to regret, that got you in trouble or did something that got you in a lot of trouble. But now you want to change. You're tired of it. You've learned from it, but you want to move on. I want to invite you to do that. 
You can do that now. Simply by accepting Christ in your life. If you want to turn from that old thing and have a new life, if you're tired of trying to run backwards, of tripping and falling, of looking in the rear view mirror, and you want to move on, you can in Jesus. It's actually simple. You don't have to do a whole lot. You just have to surrender. It's not so much about what you do. (laughs) It's what you allow God to do in you. Surrender to God. Receive Him as your Lord and He will be your Savior. Believe in Him in your mind and your heart. Baptism is something we take really seriously here at C3 Church. We take that vow really, really seriously. I've seen people come to Christ flippantly, have an emotional reaction, they don't really think about it very much. They haven't had that time to repent. Scary word. Just means I want to change my behavior now. I'm tired of that thing making me feel guilty. I don't want to deal with it anymore. I want to do different things. I want to be used for a higher purpose, a higher calling, the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king of all kings, regardless of who is a governor, a president, whatever. I want to serve him. I don't want to be preoccupied with all of these other things that are getting me angry, that are causing regret, upset, depression. I want to move on. But... We take that vow very seriously. So if that's you, I want to invite you to fill out a connection card. They're right outside the doors. You can use our app. Heather's going to teach you maybe how to do that, and you can contact us through that. Two different ways you can do that. You can speak to a leader. One of them is me. Speak to Heather, Carolee. Maybe you want to get baptized, and so we'll set up a time to meet. And we'll talk about Jesus. I'll tell you the truth of the gospel and how we can proceed with that. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the willingness of everyone to come here today and worship you. King of all kings, Lord of all lords, the Prince of Peace. Lord, I pray that over everyone today they would have peace in you, that those who haven't come to you yet, but they've heard the gospel message, they want to know more, put it in their hearts to seek you out, to become truly baptized in you, Lord, and be filled with your spirit to do powerful things for your kingdom. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.